Welcome to another episode of Cyber Coast to Coast. I am Craig Schober coming from the West Coast, Long Beach, California, and I'm joined here by my brother, Scott. Hey, what's up there, Craig? Great to join you for another great episode. Good to be joined. Um, I guess we can dispense with the formalities and get right into it. Uh, it was kind yeah. of a slow, a slower news week in terms of cybersecurity stories, but we do have three solid stories. So before we get to the first one, uh, I just want to remind our audience that this episode of Cyber Coast to Coast is brought to you by Cyberlytica. Uh, Cyberlytica provides proactive cybercrime intelligence, and you can learn more about them and all their offerings at cyberlytica.com. Uh, all right, our first story. Uh, the FBI uh, has revealed that hackers are writing code that could disrupt critical infrastructure. Uh, they released a joint advisory with the National Security Agency and Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency to examine these trends. Um, one of the things that, uh, by the way, this, this story came from uh, nextgov.com by way of them. Um, I guess one of the things that jumped out at me from this story was that uh, it, it appears based on, based on this kind of evidence that the, uh, the FBI and national you know, NSA has been collecting is that it's almost like the, the hackers are going for medium-sized targets. They're not going for the bigger targets because, you know, like the, the colonial pipeline, for instance, that was, was that dark side? I think the hacker group, um, was that the one I, I can't, I can't recall now, but yeah, there that, was a, that was the one where they, the um, colonial pipeline provided information almost immediately as far as the uh, d digital wallet identities there worked with law enforcement and they were able to recoup like three quarters of the money back. I think it was about $5 million. Initially it was paid in ransom and they got a lot of that back and the money was quickly laundered to multiple accounts. I think about six different accounts and spread out. So it's really hard to, mm -hmm. to collect and get all of it back, but they did get a good percentage of it back. Um, but I think that the key with that one, it was really one of the biggest at the time last year that made the headlines and since it was tied to critical infrastructure and the government worked so closely with them, I, I think to your point there, you're right. They're, they're kind of getting away. The, the, the cyber criminals are getting away from the really big giant targets because they're going to be scrutinized. People are, are going to quickly move in and catch them from the law enforcement perspective because they've got the tools and techniques uh, to now fight back. So instead they pick these, these, mid-sized targets that are still tied to critical infrastructure. And, and a lot of them, um, I think it has to do with the ability where they could still disrupt business operations, the controls, industrial controls and sensors and things of that sort, not just mess around with the data. A lot of times these ransomware attacks targeting like, you know, like a small business, the threat is more, hey, we got your data and it's got you know, social security number, credit cards, personal information, or things privy to the to to a company and their vendors that they're associated with. Whereas, if you think about critical infrastructure, that's providing service to the public. You know, sewage, water, electric, the flow of gasoline, whatever the case may be. So, anytime uh, cyber criminals can disrupt that 
it, it, it suddenly affects national security, public uh, safety, health and, and well-being. So it's really significant. So I think they just lowered their sights a little bit so they don't get caught as much, but they could still get the best return on their, their investment there and, and get money back. Yeah. Who, and you do, you do, you're um, inundated with all these stories that you report on and write about and stuff. Uh, correct my memory. Who was the, wasn't there a ransomware group that just got shut down or it's almost like they went out of business. They stopped offering their ransomware as a service. Well, that wasn't dark side. Was it, was it a different group? Um, Cause I'm to remember, because I thought it was cl- connected to the colonial pipeline, but I'm probably mistaken there. It was, it was, it was a big, it was a big hack and it was in the, all over the news. And then that group, I believe, would kind of announce not bankruptcy, but they kind of were, were sort of shutting down their operations. And that kind of goes to this report. Like, you know, it's, it seems like the, the biggest ones, the, the biggest hacks, the ones that get the most scrutiny and the most attention from the media almost land on the heads of these hackers the, the hardest, you know, because now you have multiple nations, multiple, you know, regions and countries and administrations all fight, all kind of working together. Because when you have a large critical infrastructure or a multi-nation state hack, you get a lot of, you know, you, you, you kind of, they become allies and now they're, then they fight against this single hacking group. Um, you know, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking. They're, they're sort of uh, lowering, like you said, they're lowering their sites to, to medium sized targets because, you know, and of course they want to make it sound like if there's such a thing as, you know, PR for, for hacking groups, they want to make it sound like, well, we're not in the business. We don't want to hurt people. We don't want people to, you know, we don't want to create riots. We don't want to create dangerous situations for the public, like a, like a giant, attack on critical infrastructure might do. We just want to, we just want to get our payday. We just want to get our money. So we're going to go for smaller targets, but of course, you know, what's really going on is they just don't want to get caught. They don't want the pressure Mm -hmm. and they still want to, you know, make their, uh, make their payday. Um, yeah, I think, I think the one, the, the one group you probably were referring to this happened back last year in about mid 2021, but it was associated. And I remember doing a story on uh, JBS. I think that the meat packing plant uh, was tied to it. And then also Kaseya, uh, those, those both were big attacks and that was tied to the group are evil. Mm. And that was probably like the, the biggest cyber criminal organization in the world at its time last year. And they're the ones that kind of went dark and yeah. just disappeared almost like overnight. It was kind of, kind of wacky. And also the beginning of last year, there was an interesting story. I think that was from the verge. This was like January, February, sometime in 2021, that dark market, that was the largest dark web marketplace that was taken offline by a whole giant Europol sting operation there with, Austrian and German law enforcement all work together. And the part that was cool about that is the dark market um, had about 500,000 users. So amazing number of transactions mm-hmm. doing all kinds of illicit things, selling like stolen credit cards and, and malware and all that stuff. And they, they were, they were taken offline. So I think as we report more and more on a lot of these stories, um, as fast as these companies are, are stealing, these cyber criminals are stealing from companies and changing up their game plan, they're getting caught now. And, and 
they're being locked up and they're facing charges and they're recovering a lot of the stolen items and the money. And I think all of this is showing that the efforts that people are making in the community of law enforcement, uh, even on the government side, uh, cybersecurity researchers, reporters, investigators, even some of the stuff that we're doing, we could take a, maybe a small credit as helping part is we're, we're making a difference collectively now against cyber criminals. And to me, that's just a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I guess it shows if they're, <clears throat> if the NSA and other organizations are finding, you know, credible evidence and creating these reports that show that um, these uh, hackers are kind of pivoting, you know, changing business models. That means, you know, no one, when things are working and the money's flowing in and you're not, you know, you don't have risk, you know, the risk is low. You don't change your business model. You keep yeah. going, you know, and the fact that they're changing their business model does show that these efforts are effective and hopefully we'll, we'll see them. You know, it's, it's a cat and mouse and you're never yeah. going to stamp out all the criminals, but if you keep the mice running, you know, and on the move, they will do less damage than if yeah. they're, you know, fat and happy. Yeah. And, and I don't think we want to be overly optimistic and be declaring victory here. I'm not saying that the good guys beat the bad guys. It's, it's not, not saying that by any means. However, it, it, it does seem like now it's making a difference. And we we're always talking to people and I'm always constantly speaking and writing and encouraging people about good cyber hygiene and, and best practices, create a strong password, multi-factor authentication, keeping data encrypted, backing up data, all the basic stuff that if everybody did, I think we'd all be a lot safer. Now I'm seeing people are starting to do it. They're listening. It's resonating with them. They're working along with what's being recommended when they take out a good cybersecurity insurance policy. So the combination of doing a lot of these things is starting to make a difference. Consumers and businesses, they're getting more cyber savvy. And, and I think that's just a, a wonderful place to be, to see that change over the past, you know, the past decade, it was looking pretty dismal from my perspective, where things seem to just get worse and worse and worse. I see a lot of the, the focus now also shifting more toward a cryptocurrency, the exchanges and, and a lot of the hacks and scams there, which in, in itself is, is monumental. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars that are being stolen and fooled out of people. However, it's a much smaller percentage of the general populations. It's those that are invested in cryptocurrency that are taking the bigger hit of this, as opposed to the, the general mom and pop shops and, you know, the old elderly or kids or, you know, any particular demographic. Right. Well, you know, so a small glimmer of hope from the first story. Unfortunately, that takes us to our next story, which is <laughs> not as hopeful. Um, wah, wah, wah. Yeah, uh, this is this one comes to us from bleepingcomputer.com. And it's more of a it's sort of like an update, you know, they do the end of the year type stuff. And this one is just looking at the year 2021. And, you know, just the US specifically and, um, and Americans, uh, apparently, uh, $547 million were lost. And this lost to a, a specific type of fraud. And when I when I think of this fraud, I, I think of, um, you know, there's all the, you always hear about phishing emails and, and whale phishing and spear phishing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's another one called cat phishing. And that one, I don't know if, did you ever watch that show? It was on, um, 
It was an yeah. MTV show. It might still be on. I don't know. But I remember seeing it years ago when the when the term catfishing first appeared in kind of the, you know, the um, the urban urban dictionary, you know, as uh, the as the term of the day. Um, it, it essentially it's, you know, pretending to be someone you're not in order to track trap or trick someone into a long distance, you know, romantic relationship or, or friendship in some cases too. And so you can see how when the heart gets involved, that um, it's, it's easier to get money involved. And then you say, Hey, you know, we've, we've been friends for a long time. You know, everything about me, we share intimate details. We might even, they might even consider themselves, you know, mates, maybe they're, uh, planning to get married soon and they still haven't met mm -hmm. but um you know can you can you loan me a hundred bucks can you can you send me some money in crypto can you i mean it, it's it's crazy when you're when you're standing outside of this you know kind of pseudo relationship it's crazy to look at and see what people fall for but you still feel bad for them because we we all fall for a, a scam or a lie or something disingenuous at one time or another in our life. So you can feel empathy for these people, mm -hmm. but you know, you talk to, you talk to people all the time about scams and about, um, you know, how to keep your guard up. What's, you know, what's like the top, top three tips you would give for people to avoid getting caught up in this, whether it's, uh, whether it's a catfish or, or just an email fish or whatever, what have you. Um, well, well, first of all, I always say it always seems to come back how it's somehow tied to money. So if anybody's ever asking you, hey, could you wire me some money? I just need something, this amount of money or send me a gift card or send me cryptocurrency. And they tie it to a sense of urgency, high probability it's a scam. And, and the same thing is true if you, if you don't know the person. You've never met them. And when I say met them, I don't mean like over social media. I mean, met them face to face, shook their hands, sat down and had stuff. Don't send them money. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's just, it, and, and it's usually a guy disguised by a romantic interest or distraction, uh, something like that. So, so those type of things are typically always a scam. Uh, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my uh, cyber colleague, uh, Tyler Cohen Woods. Uh, she she put out a book a couple of years ago. It's a really great book, Catching the Catfishers. Mm. And it helps you to learn and disarm the online predators. And it really dives into kind of that 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 persona, what what makes up a person and understanding how they try to use different techniques to scam you, just like that that TV show there about about catfishers. Um, so check that out on Amazon. I think it's got like an orange and blue cover on it, but catching the catfishers by Tyler Cohen Wood, a great read. And there's some great tips throughout there to really educate somebody that's not real deep into cyber, but gets a nice high level, uh, idea and some tips that you can apply in your life. So you don't fall for these type of romance scams and things like that. Uh, just to add, there's one like interesting stat when I, after I read this, uh, article, just thinking about the demographics of the people that are targeted. It was interesting. I don't know if you noticed, it mentioned that people 70 or older, they repeat uh, reported the highest losses of about $9,000 that they're scammed out of uh, for these romance scams, as opposed to somebody 18 to 29, which maybe typically people that are 18 to 29, they're more involved in 
relationships and dating and looking to get married and so on and so forth, they get about $750 that they were scammed out of. So what a, what a big uh, uh, disproportionate amount of money that older people are, are being duped out of. So it just, just reminds me about when we talked about it a little bit in the book that you and I uh, recently released, Senior Cyber, um, that people that are older, seniors, elderly are often targeted by scams just like this, romance scams. It's one of the biggest areas where they can actually um, make a ton of money off of people and it goes unreported often because people are embarrassed. They're intimidated. They get fooled. It's really a sad, sad state of affairs, but it's happening in each and every day. So um, I think the key is really got, got to be cautious that one of the, the stats in there, they mentioned romance scams are up 80% just in the past year or so from uh, just a couple of years ago to, to 2017. So it's a, an upward trajectory. It's only getting worse. So especially you dear older ones, be careful not to be duped. Yeah, I think a lot of that is prob- stems from the pandemic. You got a lot of long-term, long-distance relationships going on. Some of them are legitimate, some of them not so legitimate. Mm-hmm. And also, I'd I'd be interested to see the um, the demographic, you know, the targeting for our generation. You know, we're we're I guess we're millennials, um, and it makes me. Th- I would assume that we would be the most targeted in that when you look at the younger set, the younger generation, I think, yeah, they, um, they rely on social media heavily for their relationship. So that's, you know, that's rife for targeting, but on the other hand, they're also savvy. I think they grew up with social media and so they understand who's playing them and who's, you know, not being truthful just based on a few texts. Whereas when I look at stuff like that, I'm kind of like, I got to, you know, I got to break it down and, and look at the context and say, like, who, who's texting me and why and what are they, you know, what are they talking about? I'm not even sure. I don't even remember the last conversation I had with them. Um, and then you look at look at an older demographic uh, to uh, as a, a, a to counterbalance against uh, millennials like us. And they are very trusting. They have the, the means. They have the funds that are targeted. Um, but I don't know that they're on, uh, social media. I don't know that they're using computers and FaceTiming as often as we are, you know, kind of in the middle here. So I would, I would assume that, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would assume that we're the most, not maybe not the most targeted, but we're the most vulnerable because we're not used to vetting through digital means but but we're old enough to be using those digital means to get ourselves into trouble, uh, whether it's you know a a, scam, a hacker scam or some kind of um, you know fraudulent uh, financial info or 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 a catfish. Uh, I don't know. I'll, yeah. I'll have to. I'm going to keep an eye on those stats though to see where I rank and where you rank. You know, people our age rank in in that things because there's you know there's pros and cons to to every every age group. Uh, mm-hmm. that I could think of. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to figure out who has the most cons on their side. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I guess, I guess if I reflect back to, if we just look at the first couple of years, when we went to school, we really didn't have exposure to computers. Kids nowadays, when you're in kindergarten, you know, 
first grade on up, you have not only exposure to computers, you have computer classes and you have graphic classes and computers are, at least in my kids' schools, and again, they're both in high school, everybody has issued a, a Google laptop computer. And that's your personal computer that you take out and you do your homework on that. Your grades are on that. You have remote access on that. So they use that virtually when they couldn't go to school because of COVID. So they understand how to use computers and technology, sometimes to a fault. Um, And and again, maybe maybe sometimes they're a little too trusting and other times they're not trusting enough. Uh, And it does it does vary greatly between between age groups. I think we do tend to fall like kind of in between, I often feel like where we're, we, we tend to investigate something. We stop, we question it a little bit. We're, we're not sure is that legit or not? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Whereas it seems like the younger generation can make a quicker decision. Either they just don't care or they just point and click and, and move on with it and live with the consequences. I'm, I'm really not sure, but maybe it's because they don't have the connections to financial things yet. Yeah. In other words, once you're a little bit, once you're out of high school and now you get your own credit card, your own bank account, your own car loan, your own mortgage, you're filing taxes. When it's tied to something where it affects your pocketbook or your pocket, your wallet, you think a little differently, I think. And, and maybe that's part of the dynamics that, that we see come into play too. Yeah, it's definitely a part of it. And it's, it's our relationships to computers too. I mean, we had a computer club and a computer, computer classes all the, going all the way back into my um, middle school. But, you know, the relation to those computers weren't networked. There was no internet sure. to speak of. So the relationship was a one-on-one, you know, human user to computer. And now you don't really find that. You find kids with Chromebooks and every single program they use is like a Google Sheets. It's some, yes. it's some program that's that won't function properly unless you're connected to the internet, unless you're connected to others in your class or your teacher. And so it's that, you know, it's the, it's the way they express themselves and the way they just basically use the computer. You got to have someone on the other end. And if that's someone on the other end, if you don't know them, then you should be skeptical and you should be very cautious, especially anything with money or meeting them in a private place where you might not be safe. And, you know, there's a lot of things to consider that kids just don't have the experience yet that we might have. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think to some degree in that, and it's an interesting thought with kids in school that are locked into the Google ecosystem with these different Google Docs and things, it's somewhat of a silo because I've noticed a few times where I'd want to see something and my kids would have to go get their their Google computer and show me their laptop. And I'm like, well, can I just pull it up here on the internet? And they're like, no, it doesn't work that way. I I don't have access to it that Mm -hmm. way exactly. Or why don't you just send it to your email? And they're like, oh no, that's only for within our school system, if a teacher sends me an email or I'm sending to a teacher, I can't send it outside. So it's like a, like a uh, internet or something like that. So it's kind of that security by obscurity or, or making it so weird that you can't really connect outside of a certain ecosystem and it allows it to remain some level uh, of security, I guess. So maybe there's some good things about it, but uh, it's hard when you get out into the real world. And now if you try to do things the same, guess what? You get a lot of surprises. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, move on to our, our third and final story here. Um, this one I pulled 
from The Verge, founded on The Verge, and it's more of a, um, I don't want to say editorial piece, but it's it's kind of a, it's an expansive piece. So I, I urge everyone to go to it and check it out. Um, their headline is, uh, feds are still using ID.me to scan your face and it's human reviewers can't keep up. Um, I thought of this one because uh, just this week, actually, I went to uh, I'm, I'm trying to get involved more with uh, community stuff and, and uh, you know, helping out and, and volunteering my time. So I found this really cool organization uh, for in Long Beach here where they, um, you know, uh, uh, shelter dogs. Mm-hmm. And you go and Kelly, we're looking to, you know, we're looking to get another dog and maybe foster a dog or, or adopt permanently, whatever. But I used to do this a little bit in Brooklyn um, at the Sean Casey uh, uh, shelter, which was actually a private organization. And I mentioned that because this Long Beach one is kind of a state sponsored thing. And I never realized how many hoops you have to jump through in order just to volunteer your time. Mm. Um, I had to go, I have to go to um, a uh, service called, I don't know if you heard of it, it's called LiveScan. And it's a service, I think it's run, it runs through all the FBI computers. And what they do is, you know, they take a picture of you, they fingerprint everything, and then they run it through FBI database to make sure you you don't have a criminal record Mm -hmm. and that you're being honest about who you are and your, your address and your physical description and all those things. Then, and then they give it, you know, the thumbs up or thumbs down. They share that with this particular animal shelter. And then the animal shelter says, okay, you've been cleared. Now we have to start your training for all your volunteer. And this is how you, you know, this is how you wash out the cages. This is how you walk the dogs. And this is how you're supposed to play with them. You know, all that, all that stuff. But going to this, um, it was kind of a notary, a public notary I went to, and they had a, a, a fingerprint scanner there and they scanned every single one of my fingers individually all of them together. They did my thumbs and they make you, they turn, you have to turn your fingers in a specific way. Really. It wasn't just like, you know, they're doing the old ink pad and taking a, a fingerprint and then you move on to the next thing. They were, it was very uh, comprehensive. And so they were, you know, uh, vetting me just to make sure I didn't have a criminal record. And, and I, I don't even, I don't even know how much goes on for, you know, if I'm applying for a gun permit, for instance, or something like that, I would hope that that much uh, uh, checking out occurs. Um, Backgrounds and things like that. I guess maybe yeah. they didn't see that you got uh, got caught years back with the uh, laser scan. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah, technically that was never that was uh, not on I, the record. Yeah, it was off record. Um, they never, I never got. Uh, there was no mug, no mug shot, no oh, criminal sheet. So I, I got off that one uh, free and clear. <laughs> it wasn't part of my permanent record, as they say. Uh, you're um, going to have yeah. to share that with the audience, I think. Do we have two minutes to hear what oh, happened? Uh, I, I'll try to condense it into a, a fast give her, story. Give the Reader's Digest version of it. Uh, okay. This was, this was back in the day. Um, let's see. Early, probably 1990, I'm going to say. It might have been 91. It was right around the time. It was, I was in high school towards the end of high school, went out with a bunch of friends. And well, before I went out, uh, dad gifted me this laser. He, he had been traveling to Asia 
to do business. I think he was checking out the price of computer chips and buying and bringing them back and selling because it was cheaper just to do it that way. And, um, you know, these, these, uh, these EPROMs chips. Um, anyway, he came across a red laser pointer, um, you know, and this, you know, remember, like I said, this was like 1990, these things were hard to come by. They were expensive and they were pretty bulky. These were not the same laser pointers today that you can buy for $10 and put on your keychain, and you can use. And, you know, when you're teaching a class and you could point at the whiteboard with the laser pointer and, and all these cat videos we see where cats are chasing lasers, <laughs> it's nothing like that. This was a, this was a laser pointer, the size of a, you know, kind of a big candy bar. And it took two AAA batteries and dad said, Hey, I, I picked up this laser pointer. It was, pr- it was probably a couple hundred bucks. You probably bought it for back then. He said, you want something to play with here? Have fun with this. I was like, Oh, great. And I started, you know, playing with it in my room, shining it at the wall, trying to get our dog Barky to, to chase the laser. You know, he wasn't very interested because he's not a cat, but you know, but I started <laughs> shining it. I started shining it out my window and realized like, Hey, at night, this thing has, actually has a decent range just this will go several hundred feet in unlit darker areas so I, I shoved it in my pocket went out with my friends and we went and saw a movie and you know finished the movie and I remembered it was in my pocket I didn't I didn't shine it at the screens I didn't want to <laughs> ruin the experience for everyone <laughs> and importantly also I didn't want to get caught because it's pretty easy to see um, you know, you can see the source of a laser sometimes especially yeah. in, in an enclosed environment like a movie theater but I pulled it out of my pocket and showed it to them as we we're like driving around. And next thing we knew, we're shining it out the window and we're going, you know, on people's houses. And, you know, it was a summer night. So some people were outside. We're shining it outside and kind of dancing on the ground. We're going into their windows, like their living room windows, into the wall. And people are, you know, we started noticing, you know, because we're doing slow drive-by because the whole point of doing it is to see people's reaction. And it was funny, you know, people are like, like every, people are just pointing at their own wall and looking like, it was kind of like we, we turned everyone into a cat, you know, because everyone was just <laughs> staring at it and they were mesmerized by this laser thing. Because again, you know, we saw lasers in, in movies already, but you don't, you didn't see too many lasers in day-to-day life, especially not on your living room wall in the middle of the, of the night. So we're doing this more and more laughing, watching people, some people freak out, some people run outside to see where it's coming from. We get to this one house and there's these uh, two guys outside working on their car and we start shining it on them and their car. <laughs> and at first, I think they laughed, but then they probably, I think they cursed us out and we, you know, we're dry, we just drove away and, and this was kind of a cul-de-sac thing. So we, we were kind of had to come back. And as we passed them by again, we did it again. And that time they were like yelling and, and, you know, gen, genuinely pissed off at us. And, you know, so we left it for that day, but we came back another night, you know, after going to a bunch of houses, we, we did these guys again. And we probably we probably pushed our luck and did it one too many times because one time we drove by shining a laser at them. They threw a full like gallon jug of water at the car and hit it. It bounced off the car and we were like, what was that? And we saw it, you know, kind of spilling out in the road and we we drove off. And but then in the rearview mirror, I was driving at the time. So in the rearview mirror, I could clearly see 
they they their car they were no longer working on their car it was not up on blocks it was ready to go they jumped in their car and sped off to chase us so now we got a full-fledged car chase and we're like speed chase in edison oh boy and we're in we're in a station wagon we're in the old ford blue and white station wagon (laughs) um so we were not going to win this chase but you know we gave it a try and kind of you know flew around in these roads luckily there was no there wasn't much traffic and there was no pedestrian traffic at all that I remember. So we drove around, you know, probably 55, 60 miles per hour in 25 mile per hour zones, of course. Oh, so nothing safe going on there. And these guys, they, we, we pulled into another kind of cul-de-sac and had to turn around. So they pulled their car sideways on the road to block us in but i just drove up on the sidewalk around them and said i'm not going to deal with this we drove all the way out to um uh woodbridge avenue uh, for you know shout out to anyone in the edison area and um we got stuck at a traffic light they pulled up right behind us and there was no wiggle room i couldn't i couldn't back up or go forward really so these guys they freaked out jumped out of the car started you know, tr- of course, we locked the doors. They're trying to get into all the doors. They're slamming, kicking the windows, everything. They they broke the windshield wiper. Finally, they went to the back, the rear window, and I don't know what they broke it with, but some. I just heard, you know, there was a big smash, glass everywhere, and the oh. guy starts climbing into the car to to get us because they had no other way to get us, I, I suppose. And at that point, the cars. In front of us, they had a green light. They started moving. So I just started moving the car <laughs> and the guy was <laughs> hanging halfway in the car. He kind of rolled out and I'm sure that only annoyed them further. So they jumped in their car. The chase continued, except this time there was the there was the Edison uh, State Police uh, headquarters was right there. So we pulled into their parking lot. Oh, and man. these guys never pulled in the parking lot. They knew better. They just kept driving. And kept so we're like, oh, yeah, we we're like, well, we're safe for now, but what are we going to do? So I don't, we don't want to go out there again. Those guys might be waiting for us, whatever. So we started banging on the doors and the cops yelled, so like, go around to the other door. <laughs> we're like, okay, <laughs> it's kind of an emergency, but okay. So we went around to the front door, banged on the door and they had to let us in. We explained the uh well not the whole story we 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 kind of started from you know the 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 tail end of the story and slowly worked our way back to why they were chasing incriminating (laughs) yeah exactly and finally after after a long story um of you know we're the victims and these guys these guys wanted to kill us and now we're safe at least and you can protect us right finally it got to well why why were they chasing you and we revealed well it might have been because of this laser here and they were like they looked at it. They looked at me and they're like, you're the laser guy. And, and we we're like, what? What are you talking about? And they said, we've been getting reports for weeks because we at this point, we've been doing it for weeks um, that someone is going around terrorizing Edison residents with this laser. And everyone assumed it was attached to a sniper rifle or whatever. And, and we're like, what? What are you talking about? We had no idea. Like there was this much, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, this, this many, this many reports going on, this much outrage and fear and all these things that they made it sound like I, who knows, I'm sure the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but, um, Anyway, they said, you guys are going to have to just stay here and we're going to have to call your parents to pick you up. And, and, you know, the least of your problems are these two guys chasing you because we have a lot of other people that would love to, 
uh, you know, hang you uh, figuratively. Unbelievable. Um, and didn't, didn't they, if I remember right, didn't they, I guess the uh, call went to mom and dad, they had to come down to the police station and kind of release you. And then at that time, I think they, they confiscated the, uh, the actual laser from you too and kept it or something. Yeah. That's part of all the, I've, I've been pulled over a few times for like just shenanigans and, and harmless little things. And anytime there's a device involved, anytime there's something that could cause a problem, whether it's something block blocking your, you know, the driver's view or a distracting light, uh, like a strobe light, like that kind of thing. And yes, I've had all those things in the car going <laughs> and stuff. The cops always say, uh, yeah, we're going to confiscate that. And we're going to take, we're going to take you in and we're going to ticket you or whatever, you know, whatever the charge is, but they always confiscate any piece of, you know, contraband, I guess, yeah. as they, as they consider it. So I never saw that laser again. I suppose I learned a lesson, but I've owned several lasers since then. I never used them in that fashion. Um, just cause I'm, 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 you know, I love the technology and I love playing with you know, the idea of playing with lasers. And, you know, I got these, these, uh, those green lasers. I remember mm -hmm. I, I brought those to Berkeley to use those for some kind of lighting situations for photography and stuff like that. And we use on our Wolfhound pro, we have a, we have a built-in laser, you know, so that not only will you see the direction finding, uh, listed as a, in terms of a measurement, but you'll, you can actually use a, a visual direction finding cue and the laser will, you know, shoot nice. in the direction of the, of where the offending, uh, you know, contraband cell phone is located. So That's there cool. are good and bad use cases for everything. And I happened to find the bad use case for lasers on those particular evenings back in Edison in the uh, early nineties. <laughs> Yeah. And when I think about it, just trying to put it in perspective, like if I was an Edison resident, then when you heard of a laser, you're right. You never saw of a, a handheld laser pointer. You always associate it with a sniper rifle or lasers were, were in the early days of Goldfinger, a James Bond movie or Logan's run way back in like the seventies. And then in the eighties, it was like real genius and Tron. And then later on in star Wars, like certain movies were known for lasers, but they weren't the type that were in little pointers that you just pointed. So what you had was kind of cutting edge at the time. And I could see why people would be scared to death. I know if I was in my house and I saw a little red dot, you know, dancing around inside my house, I would think somebody's trying to kill me. So yeah, yeah. They, they, they got the laser sniper guy and uh, you'll live to tell about it and share the story later on. <laughs> Yeah. So sorry. Sorry about the long story. Uh, I just wanted to get all the details in because I don't want to be judged <laughs> or yes, at least exactly, if I'm going exactly. to be, ju yeah, if I'm going to be judged, oh, I'd rather be. be judged on the truth and not hearsay. Yeah. So that's my version of the story and I'm sticking to it, but <laughs> back to the ID.me story. Um, cause we haven't, we haven't even touched on it. We barely did anyway. Yeah. Um, this remind this also reminds me of the, uh, have you, uh, the past couple of times I've flown out of the country for vacations, uh, there's the area where they scan you. They do that. You put your passport in and they do the face scan. Your that's face what scan. I, yeah, yeah. That's what I think of when I think of this ID.me thing. Um, but apparently it's not working out so well because this is a, you know, it's a private company worth, I think it's worth over a billion. At least they had, I saw something about a, a big round of investment they recently had, but there were also a lot of job cuts and apparently they're having, they're having problems 
with their um, I call it customer service type of thing where you have a percentage of facial IDs that are problematic mm-hmm. and now you need assistance. It can't be, you know, you're using something very automated right. and fast. Now, when you run into a problem, it doesn't recognize a particular face or facial features and it gets confused and it's not working right. And I think the part that kind of caught my attention, tell me if this caught your attention there, um, that not only the fact that the this didn't exactly work too well, it was disproportionately did not work well for women or people of color, it mentioned, mm-hmm. which I think would right away be kind of offensive. Certainly, if I was a person of color or if I was a woman, I'd be like, what is this? And it doesn't work for me, but it works for, you know, this this white male perfectly. And they could, you know, kind of right. keep going and proceed through with uh, whatever's going on. A lot of it, I think, was tied to um insurance things, employment programs, and different things like that to speed up the process. But it sounded like that it mentioned about 10% of the users that did not properly authenticate and ID their face properly, which is a, a huge, I mean, we're usually dealing with, with things with detection where there's an acceptable rate of false detection, but you could validate that rather quickly because with your human eyes or ears, you can you know, validate something or authenticate it immediately. Now, when you're doing it on a massive scale, I think they said there were 27 state level programs that were adopted. So this is massive use between 27 state level programs. It's just a lot, a lot of people and you need a lot of bodies to provide that, uh, I guess, support and assistance. (laughs) Yeah. It's another, it's a good example of these unintended consequences that we get when we rely a little too heavily on artificial intelligence, Um, you got to train all AI has to be trained, you know, you, because if the AI has no context for what its job is, it's, it's worthless. It won't work for our purposes. So, but the problem here is you have a lot of white males training these AIs using themselves, using friends, using colleagues. And so your data pool is, much broader than when you limit it and when you don't use people of color and female faces. And so the AI is only as as smart as its training can be. And so I think that's part of the reason why it, it fell short. And it, I think it also fell short with the, um, the moderation part, the kind of, you know, you always need, uh, you always um, handle massive scales of uh, whether it's machine learning or, or, um, you know, some kind of recognition of an image, you know, we see those captcha things all the time on Google Mm -hmm. prove I'm a human those, you know, that's just essentially a giant training center for AI for Google's AI. And in the case of, um, this ID.me, I don't think they were using enough human intervention to, right the wrongs of the AI to fix the problems that the AI were stumbling into. Um, in fact, they were laying off a lot of people, which, and it reminded me a lot of uh, Facebook's problems back yeah. about six months ago. There were a lot of stories about um, moderators in forums and all these user groups that Facebook was just using their kind of you know dumb AI to uh, look for keywords, look for users that might have uh, violated vi- violated policy without the proper context. You know, these things, they were just shutting down. They were flagging users for the wrong reasons, and they did not have enough 
users moderate not enough human moderators um, that would kind of stick their head into these groups occasionally and make sure that people weren't violating the content guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think understanding context is, is one of the biggest battles. I think back to the days of when Apple was even training uh, Siri and we've all seen those funny things where, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is kind of applied to, um, you know, digital assistants and things like you mentioned with Facebook moderating. Um, nothing beats a human as far as artificial intelligence, but you can't necessarily throw thousands or tens of thousands of humans to do something that's kind of repeatable and it gets very expensive. Although when you put a human up against a computer, the majority of time, a human's instinct, I call it, or understanding of the context much quicker than a computer can actually solve things very quickly. And you get to the point where you kind of are, are losing, where you're saying, geez, we have so many, we have such a growing customer base. We have to keep adding human bodies in here to fill in the AI component because AI can't be trained and taught fast enough. It just gets too expensive and it kind of breaks at one point, I think. And that's kind of what seems like this, with regards to this story here, this ID uh, me um, scanning their face and, and they just couldn't keep up the humans it, and the whole thing kind of was, fell apart or is falling apart in that process. And I think anytime you're using a huge system like these, um, you have a third party that comes in. It's a large contract. It takes time. It takes money. It takes a lot of handholding to transition and learn technology and, and the same thing is true when you get away from it, as they're kind of backing away from it, you can't just turn a switch and say, we're not going to use this anymore. Well, what are you going to replace it with? Right. You still got to proceed with business as usual. And now suddenly it's really hard to keep up. And then you start to appreciate the benefits of AI and some of the, the automated systems that were in place when they were working. So it, it's a fine line that they're walking here for sure. Yeah. We hear about these stories from time to time, like, the um, the prison systems being replaced by private industry, mm-hmm. um, and you know there's an argument to go both ways. But if you push technology too far too fast, it's always going to kind of butt its head up against just reality. You know, you can't scale. Um, in other words, these uh, private industries can only be profitable when they could scale enough get enough data to train their AI and minimize their, the amount of humans working for them. And so you're going to, you're not going to have enough human intervention and you're going to get problems like these. And conversely, you have the government, which is generally seen as a big kind of bloated, inefficient Mm -hmm. means to get the job done. But you know what, when you have a ton of government workers working for the IRS or any kind of thing that involves a facial recognition system, you are, you're going to, you're going to be paying a lot more in salary, but you're going to be making less mistakes because you don't have uh, an improperly trained artificial intelligence as the sure. you know backbone of your entire system. And, and that's, that's to me, that's what this story illustrates the best. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great stuff there. So, yeah. so really three interesting stories today. I like the diversity in them. They're talking about ID me scanning face and things like that. We talked about romance scams, which was kind of, kind of, I think it's certainly an interesting topic. And then 
even some of the the changes, uh, the shift, I should say, that uh, cyber criminals are taking with regards to which companies they're targeting and shifting from the big size to more of the midsize. So it's a great conversation on uh, this episode of uh, Cyber Coast to Coast. Yeah. And before we uh, leave, um, uh, well, let's also remind our listeners that uh, this episode is brought to you by Cyberlytica and Cyberlytica uh, at www.cyberlytica.com is the place where you can learn uh, all about their proactive cybercrime intelligence and what they do about scouring, auditing the dark web for your email address to see if it's been compromised and your passwords and all that stuff. So uh, I urge everyone to go check them out and you can, you know, they offer uh, small business enterprise and even individual solutions. If you want to go there and see and make sure your digital footprint is well, I'm not going to say non-existent, but let's, let's say minimized on the dark web. Yeah. Cause I feel like everyone's on the dark web these days, whether they want to be or not. True, um, true. So go check them out at cyberlytica.com. Um, you got anything uh, before we end the podcast, you got anything coming up you could think of, or. Um, just, just keeping really busy. I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We're coming out of this pandemic and uh, for, for us, the new year is always new challenges, new products that we're launching. I'm excited about our, our SafeHound uh, weapons detection system. So doing a lot of testing there and seeing some great results there and a lot of interest from our existing customers. Uh, we did put on uh, this year to two new uh, distributors of our products so far, one in Switzerland, one in Nigeria. And I have a lot more distributors reaching out to uh, look into uh, offer our products in different countries. So our, our, our global footprint as a company continues to grow and expand as our products are used around the globe. So I'm, I'm really excited about that and look forward to some, some exciting things in uh, 2022 here. All right. Can't wait to bring it all uh, via this podcast. And of course, uh, we welcome any listeners to check out our website at bbsystems.com and Scott Schober, uh, S-C-O-T-T-S-C-H-O-B-E-R.com for uh, your cybersecurity and wireless security in general, uh, your needs. Um, we're looking for, of course, subscribers. Send in your questions and comments for the podcast. Um, we, our audience is building. We're happy to see it, but it can always be bigger. We can always be reaching out to more. So uh, until the next episode of uh, Cyber Coast to Coast. This is Craig Schober signing out from Long Beach, California. All right. And this is Scott Schober from the East Coast. Stay safe, everybody out there. Have a good one. Cyber Coast to Coast.